So for our scripture reading this morning, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 28 through 37. It's page 880 in your pew Bibles if you need that. But we want to read Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. Listen to the word of the Lord. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it To whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Listen to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded again that you are everything and we are nothing. Anything that we are is because we are made in your image to be your servants, to be your sons and daughters, to be a people that properly extol and praise and honor and submit our lives to you. Father, as we face this coming week, and many are anxious and fearful Some are filled with anger, animosity, and hate. But Lord, we 
should rest at peace, for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You raise up leaders and you bring them down. For ultimately, Lord, we await the coming of your Son, knowing that he reigns at your right hand, but one day your kingdom will come and your will will be done on this earth as it is right now in heaven. Lord, what we desire as a people is that we would not be hypocritical. We would not live as we are the kings of our kingdom. That we would live so that your will is done in our hearts right now as it is in heaven because we anticipate your coming kingdom. So, Lord, open our ears that we may hear. Humble our hearts that we may repent and submit in happy obedience to you. May you bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. For it's in the name of King Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Most of you are aware that Tuesday is the election. And by now you probably have what we could call election fatigue. That is, you are tired of pretty much anything and everything related to the election. You're tired of the ads, you're tired of the media bias, you're tired of the rhetoric, the riots, the rallies, and and most of all, all the political posturing by the candidates. But what concerns us most is that we're not just tired of the election, perhaps we are even more troubled by this election. We're troubled by the lack of character in both candidates. One shows himself to be crass while the other tries to hide his corruption. And it's troubling to think that one of them is going to be the president of the United States. But we're also troubled by how divided we are as a nation. This is one of the most polarizing elections in history in terms of the policies being put forth by the two candidates. And and so for this reason, there is a nervous angst, even a fear over the outcome of this election. What if Biden wins? What if Trump wins again? When the election is finally over, what will we see? Well, I know exactly what we will see on Election Day. According to the promises of God's Word here in Daniel 4, we will see another day of God's perfect sovereignty on display. Listen, trusting God's sovereignty over kings and kingdoms actually opens the door to peace on Election Day and even after the election is over. When we realize that God influences the hearts of kings and rulers, presidents and senators, and we can choose to pray for them rather than fret about them, rather than wringing our hands in worry, we actually can lift up our hearts in trust. And one of the best places to see this in the Bible, this election day truth, is here in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 is a remarkable story, a rather bizarre story about a king who went crazy. And in that story, there is a lesson for presidents, just as valid today as it was 25 centuries ago, but it is also a story about every one of us here this morning. What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 
actually happens to all of us. And for many of us, it may happen more than once. Therefore, we should pay rather careful attention to this ancient story because we must learn this lesson or we will perish. But if we choose to learn this lesson, then we are in for the greatest joys in the kingdom of heaven. And so what I want us to do is to first look at this story of the king who went crazy and then look at its relevance for the next president of the United States. I also want to make mention that I am very grateful for John Piper's sermon here on Daniel 4 in anticipation of the 1988 presidential election from which I have drawn and gleaned for this sermon here. Incidentally, I preached this sermon four years ago, right before the 2016 presidential election. And here we are, four years later, and the lessons here in Daniel 4 are more relevant now, more pertinent now than ever before. And so here's the lesson the king who went crazy teaches us. Notice it in your notes if you want to follow along. And that is the pathway of the pride of self to the praise of God travels through the valley of humiliation. And this is the pathway that every person must travel if he or she wants to have eternal life. Why? Because ever since Adam's first sin, we all, all of us, have been born with this disposition. Do you remember the essence of that very first sin in the Garden of Eden? It was the abandonment of childlike dependence on God in favor of a godlike dependence on self. And ever since then, all people everywhere have been born with this sinful nature of pride. Now that's bad news. Because God hates Pride, according to Proverbs 8.13. In fact, in Isaiah 2.11, God himself said, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so God hates pride, but the good news is, God also loves proud sinners. Are you thankful for that? That's me. I'm thankful for that. That's why he sent his son Jesus into the world to save us from the power and penalty of our pride. And so Jesus says in Matthew 18, 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus came into the world to convert people from God-like dependence on self to a child-like dependence on God. And then he died to pay the penalty for our pride and to actually show us the way of humility. So God has provided for us. He's provided for us a path that leads from pride to the kingdom of heaven to eternal life. But that path travels through the valley of humiliation. That's what the Bible is all about. It's what this story here in Daniel chapter 4 is all about. And it's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar's story actually has three stages here. And the very first stage is this, the pride of self. The pride of self. Stage one begins when King Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his glory. Nebuchadnezzar is a king of a great empire and he knows it. 
So what did the king see when he gazed out over the city of Babylon? Well, he looked with pride at his hanging gardens, which was a beautiful artificial mountain he had built for his wife inside the city. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar also had three massive palaces in the city. His main palace, get this, was 350 yards long and 200 yards wide. That's some 630,000 square feet. In the city of Babylon, it was an architectural marvel. Records indicate that some 2 million people lived there, making it the largest city in the world at that time. And this city was protected by a uh, by a double-walled system, 80 feet, 85 feet high, and wide enough at the very top of that wall that chariots could actually race around the perimeter of the city. King Nebuchadnezzar, he had every reason to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel satisfied. And so no wonder his heart swells with pride. This is stage one in the path, and it's where we all start. The pride of self. Look what the king says again in Daniel 4, verse 30. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. So what can we learn from these words about the nature of pride? Well, the king here shows us two parts to pride. And one is found by the word by, and the other is found by this word for. So when the king says, by my mighty power, he means I, I love to think of myself as the, as the cause and as the source of all my greatness. When I see what I have built, I love to savor the fact that my intelligence, my initiative, my power were the cause of this greatness. It came from me and through me. That is the essence of what the king is saying. And so pride gets its pleasure from being independent and self-sufficient. And then King Nebuchadnezzar adds, for the glory of my majesty. In other words, he's saying, I have built this great Babylon by my power, and I've done it all for myself, for my own glory, for my own praise. Pride loves to think of itself as the source of great achievement and also the recipient of great praise. So what is pride? Well, here's the essence of pride. In fact, this definition comes from Piper in his sermon that he preached back in 1988. He says, pride is the enjoyment of self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency and self-exaltation rather than God-exaltation. Pride, in other words, occurs when you start thinking that every good thing in your life is the result of who you are and what you have done. It removes God from the equation. Now, don't make the mistake of saying to yourself even right now, well, pride certainly is not my problem because I don't feel self-sufficient and nobody is praising me for my looks or my abilities or what I've done last week. Be very careful here. Don't let Satan trick you, even now in this moment. Pride is not just the achievement of self-sufficiency or the achievement of self-exaltation, but rather pride is the enjoyment of them, the delight in them, even the desire for them. You may see your life as a total failure or even feel crushed by defeat. 
and still have pride as the driving force of your life. For example, both the strong person who doesn't believe the grace of God is needed in his or her life, and the weak person who doesn't believe the grace of God is sufficient for his or her life, both have pride in their hearts since both are relying on self and not God. So the very first stage of our journey is pride. And if we do not humble ourselves before God, then he will lead us to stage number two, which is the valley of humiliation. You see, it is a dangerous thing to stroll along the roof of your personal kingdom and start thinking about how great you are. Watch out. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Did you just happen to notice all the personal pronouns King Nebuchadnezzar used in verse 30? I and my takes center stage. One author, David Dykes, writes, he gorged himself on his own self-importance. If anyone needed to put his ego on a diet, it was Nebuchadnezzar. And God showed up to serve him an extra helping of humble pie. While the words were still on his lips, King Nebuchadnezzar heard a voice from heaven. And what did he hear? Notice it again. Look what God tells the king here in verses 33, 31 through 33. He says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now, can you imagine living like this? Can you imagine this happening to you? One moment, Nebuchadnezzar is surveying his royal kingdom. And the next, he is raving mad, ripping off his clothes, and galloping on all fours down the streets of Babylon. One moment, he is eating at the king's table. And the next, he is eating grass in the fields like an ox. Some people say Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with what is called clinical lycanthropy which is a strange form of insanity in which a person is convinced that he or she is an animal and then attempts to live like one. More likely, it was what is called boanthropy, which is a psychological disorder in which a person actually believes himself to be an ox or a cow. And it's hard now to imagine a more severe form of humiliation from God than this. There's no way as well to keep this king's insanity from the public for seven years. Sooner or later, word is going to leak out. And though Nebuchadnezzar was still the king, he could not reign, he could not speak, he could not appear in public. All he could do is act like a beast of the field, living and eating with other animals. And over time, we are told that his hair became matted and coarse and looked like eagle's feathers. His fingernails and toenails were never cut and became like bird's claws. Listen, it is a long way down from being 
the king of Babylon to being a beast in the field. So why? Why would God make Nebuchadnezzar act like a beast? What's the purpose behind all this? Well, the reason for the valley of humiliation is that God leads us to the valley of humiliation so that we can actually feel the bestiality of our pride and taste the bitter grass of its field. Listen, in many ways, pride is a form of spiritual insanity. It's it's claiming credit for ourselves that actually belongs to God alone. When we try to become like God, we become like an animal. Pride puts us in a class with the beast of the field. That's the point of this whole story here. We all have this, quote, beast of pride living within us. You see, Nebuchadnezzar represents a life that is out of control due to pride. He can't even follow the basic instincts, the basic rules of personal hygiene and diet. Has all this happened to you? Do you you ever, or have you ever, look in the mirror and and, and wonder to yourself, what's happened to me? How How did I go from this to this? My life is out of control. Well, stage two is the painful discovery of this very truth. You see, we thought we were strong, and then we discovered, no, I'm weak. We thought we were weak, and then we discovered that we are simply protecting our egos. We thought we were self-sufficient, and then we discovered that we are utterly dependent on God for life and breath and everything. And so I urge you, if you've never been there, go to the Valley of Humiliation. Let yourself, in some ways, feel the insanity and even the bestiality of pride. And when you have tasted that bitter grass, then travel to the final stage of the journey. Stage number three, which is the praise of God. The praise of God. The pathway to life, that is eternal life, leads from the pride of self through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. Seven years later, the king's life took another dramatic turn. Look what King Nebuchadnezzar writes in verse 34. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason, in other words, my sanity, returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, that is God, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. So what is the opposite of pride? Well, in the context of our story here, Nebuchadnezzar teaches us in these verses that the opposite of pride, of man's strength, is simply the praise of who God is. It's the praise of God's sovereignty. This is what the king sings about when his sanity returns in verses 34 through 35. Look what he writes. For his dominion, speaking of God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
And then in verses 36 and 37, Nebuchadnezzar gives us the end of the story and the lesson. Here's the summary lesson that we should take to heart for our own lives. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. But notice what he says. See, now Nebuchadnezzar gets it. He understands where all this is coming from. That it's not him. He is not the source of it or the cause of it. Notice what he says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And now he speaks from experience on that one. So what does all this mean for us? Us here today. Well, it means whether you are a king with great power and great influence, or whether you're just a common person, like I would venture to say all of us here this morning are, with perhaps little power and some influence, the way out of the valley of humiliation is a revolutionary change in the way that you think about God. You see, the truth that God rules the kingdom of men must grip your mind. And the sovereignty of his will must become the foundation of all your thinking. But Nebuchadnezzar, listen to me, he didn't just learn this truth in his head. He actually felt it in his heart. And that's the point of verse 34 when he says, And I bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever. And then what does he do? He breaks out in a song of praise of God Almighty. Now listen, I I hope, The Nebuchadnezzar story is the story of your journey as well this morning. Because it's the only journey that leads to eternal life in God's kingdom. You see, the king who went crazy teaches us that the pathway of the pride of self to the praise of God must travel through the valley of humiliation. So wherever you might be on that road, let me encourage you to take another step toward God and away from pride. Now, about now, you are probably wondering, what does all this have to do with the presidential election on Tuesday? Well, the answer is everything. So how does a king who went crazy apply to the election this Tuesday? Well, let me close with an application to the presidential election. And I do so with one simple yet powerful truth. Notice it. And that is, God will sovereignly choose the next president of the United States. In other words, God ordains the next man who is elected president of our country. You might be saying, man, Bruce, where in the world do you get that? How can you make such a statement? Well, go back and look what it says in the last part of verse 32. Look what it says. And this time I want to read it to you from the New Century Version, where it says, The Most High God rules over every kingdom on earth and gives those kingdoms to anyone he chooses. 
You see, that's not just true for kings in Nebuchadnezzar's day. That is still true for presidents in our day. God's sovereign control includes elections and election results. Which means the winner of this election on Tuesday only wins because it fits inside of God's plan. And this plan is ultimately for God's glory and our good. Now, there are two things that this does not mean. And I want you to see those as well. First of all, it does not mean that you should not vote on Tuesday. Or perhaps you already voted early. Why? Because God will govern the election by governing the voters who vote. Notice again what verse 35 says. It reminds us that God, look what it says, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, which includes the USA. You see, as American citizens, we have the privilege to vote. And when we vote, we determine, according to God's sovereign will, who will lead our nation, who will make our laws, who will protect our freedoms, who will ensure justice for all. As Samuel Adams once said, let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. As Christ followed. Don't just vote, though, as citizens of America, but also vote as citizens of heaven. This means let your faith in God and the gospel of Jesus Christ impact your vote. A recent study by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life shows that nearly two-thirds of Americans say their faith has little to do with their voting decisions. But I would suggest to you that Jesus expects us to let our faith influence every part of our decision-making in life, and that includes the democratic process of voting. And by the way, since we're talking about pride here, this is the context of this whole story in in Daniel chapter 4, both Trump and Biden are prideful men. Trump's crassness is rooted in pride. And Biden's corruption is rooted in pride as well. This is why it's important to not just consider the person you are voting for, but also the policies that they claim to stand for or promote. You realize the policies will impact a nation far longer after that president leaves. And so we must consider both. Not just the person, but also the policies. For policies impact the nation long after that president leaves office. At the same time, it does not mean that God will approve all the policies of the person who wins. Why? Because God's sovereign rule over sinful, prideful men is not an endorsement of their actions or their deeds or even their policies. God will choose the next president on Tuesday. And there are two things, though, that this does mean. It means, first of all, number one, that the presidential winner should not boast. 
should not boast, but should be humbled under the mighty hand of God. In other words, the winner of Tuesday's election should not boast like King Nebuchadnezzar and say, by my power and my wisdom, I have won this presidency. But he should be humbled under the mighty hand of God who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's what we pray for. Number two, it also means that you should take heart and be encouraged by the sovereignty of God in this election. Why? Because whether or not Biden wins or Trump wins, again, God still reigns. God still reigns. Do you believe that? Does that embrace your heart? Does that consume you? And so when it comes to the election, here is the bottom line. Understand this. Vote. Yes, go out and vote on Tuesday. But do so without hope in any one person. But also vote with hope in our sovereign God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you realize all human government will one day end? But there is a government that will never end. And it is the government called the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, when he writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here, if I may say, is our hope as Christ followers on Tuesday. No matter who is president... God is sovereign, and Jesus is king. Danny Aiken, he writes, governmental legislation will not stop the moral plunge of our nation in the world. But the gospel will. Our hope is not in Republicans or Democrats, Congress or Capitol Hill. Our hope is in Calvary's Hill and a crucified and risen Savior named King Jesus. And so listen, the most important decision that you can make is not who you will vote for on Tuesday, but who you will trust for your salvation and hope. When you wake up on election day, know this, our God rules the world. Our God rules the world. As Max Locato put it, God will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has his providence depended on a king, president, or a ruler. And it won't on this election day. In fact, according to Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Therefore, trust God on election day. Our hope, listen, sits on a throne in heaven, not on a chair in the White House. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, your greatest decision, again, will not be made this Tuesday. It will be, perhaps today, the greatest vote you will ever cast will not be for a president, but for the Savior of your soul. 
And so I ask, have you ever cast your vote for Jesus Christ by repenting of your sin and receiving him personally as your Lord and Savior? That can happen even at this moment. If you will humble yourself in repentance and faith on him. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to rest in your sovereignty, knowing that you alone rule over the affairs of this world. May your will be done on Tuesday as it is always done in heaven. And may we trust you on election day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.